All right, if it's Tuesday, that means it must be time for Curse of Politics. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you, Accursed, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And dang it, if you all didn't come through for us. I think we got about 25 new reviews, and I'd just like to highlight this one from Sammy22226666666. I love this carnival of punditry. Sometimes I talk back while I'm listening. That's how comfortable I am with them. I'm not a political wannabe. I'm a citizen who wants to be informed. I want to challenge my perceptions about the political landscape. Thank you for making me think. Sammy four twos followed by seven sixes. We really love what you had to say about the pod. Carnival of punditry. Thank you for that. We also love your numeric alias, and I promise we will not spend the rest of the show trying to code break it. All right, Jenny Byrne is here. Look at her. Scott Reed is here. Look at him. Hey, guys. Let's get at it. Wow. Hey, who's with Pierre? Based on the responses, maybe the better question is who isn't with Pierre? Is there going to be a real CPC leadership race, or are they just going to anoint Mr. Polyev after his announcement online via video? And with that, we'll talk about how leadership bids are launched these days and contrast it with how it used to be done. Also, it's Toronto versus Ottawa versus Ontario versus the feds versus the truckers' convoy. We'll contrast the different government responses to the protest, and as always, we'll do our cursed clipping this week, courtesy of Mark Carney. And don't forget to stick around for our hey yous. Jenny, Scott, great to see you guys. How are you? Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Well, a lot has happened, at least in my party, since uh, the last time we uh, we chatted. Uh, uh, Aaron O'Toole was still leader the last time we chatted. We were wondering what was going to happen and uh, we were going to happen at caucus. And uh, uh, it turns out close to three quarters of his caucus decided uh, that uh, his time was done. It was a savage beating. Savage Brutal. beating. Uh, the kind of which I have no idea how a person walks into that. It's like well, Butch and Sundance. It's like, I'm sure there's just a couple guys out there, right? Is there <laughs> sort of like a sepia-toned photograph of, of Aaron kind of walking out of caucus, his gun held high and his hat out his back high on his head? Oh, we're gonna be fine. We gotta we gotta we gotta get back to gotta get back to Texas. Um, I uh, I think brutal. he knew going in it was gonna be it, it would be tight, but I think he thought it would be tight on the other way. Like basically what what I was hearing and from from every source was that if he had gotten the 50 percent plus one, he would have stayed on, which means he actually really wouldn't have stayed on for much longer uh, than because if you listen, if you've lost. We talked about this last week. If you have 35 members of your caucus that are willing to come out and say they don't want you, you can't have 50 percent against you and actually survive. He would this have been in grave trouble. Had He would have been in grave trouble had the vote been reversed. Yes, 100 percent. This right. This feels like we're at the Last Supper and we're talking about the Old Testament. That's how that's how much has happened in a week. The idea, like going back to the lost vote by O'Toole, feels like it's in another era, right? Like it's just astonishing. And so I'll just say one thing about it, which you know I'm just being a dink about it, but to me, obviously walking in there with no concept of how badly off you were, they've had three quarters of your caucus who are going to absolutely rifle you and you have no idea about it, you're not conscious of it. I mean, that's astonishing and it just talks, I mean, it's so indicative of how you could have got there in the first place. But on top of that, I, and I can't prove this, but I keep hearing from conservatives and then I read sort of leaks and bubbles online and stuff that his speech was so bad, it actually incentivized people 
to vote against him. And I know I'm kicking a dog when he's down, but for the love of God, how do you go into that situation and make people like you less? Like, it's astonishing to me. So it just, I, I just, I mean, I, I can't imagine how badly prepared and badly played this whole thing was. And so I ask, in all honesty, Jenny, is this him? Is this his team? Is this all of them? But like, I mean, how could this have been so cocked up, down, sideways, backways, every fucking way? It's just a cock up of colossal cock up proportion. Very um, cocky. Well <laughs> very low cock. All cock. All cock. No, nothing no but walk. cock. All cock. No walk. Yeah. Um, uh, no, listen, I, well, ultimately though, Scott, it comes down to him. It's, it's, it's him. I, basically between his statement that he, we talked, we talked about this last week, he put that big statement on Twitter. Uh, I learned, I, I heard that like there were about 12 caucus members that went from Monday morning supporting him to not supporting him Tuesday after they, uh, they saw that because he was basically repeating Justin Trudeau's rhetoric about, uh, about conservatives and the speech. Um, that, uh, that he gave uh, to caucus, uh, to your point, uh, anyone on the fence was like, fuck, this guy just doesn't, uh, doesn't get it. I think it, you know, his, there was, Matt Gurney had a, uh, uh, he transcribed uh, an interview that he did with someone off the record or not off the record on background uh, of one of Aaron's, uh, one of Aaron's teams who it read as in someone that didn't go in with parameters. It was obviously someone not dealing with the media because my guess is they had no idea he was going to like print the entire thing. Um, it was astonishing. Uh, it was astonishing. But the, the part, there's so many parts of it, but one part was, you know, I think we, we thought they were all, people were all stupid and, and it turns out they're not stupid. Like it's, it's, it's a very clear, it, it's a very, it, it actually sums up everything that's kind of transpired from the leadership onwards. We just thought, we thought, and I, we've talked about this on the pod, Aaron thought everyone was stupid. I'll just, I'll just fool these stupid fucking uh, conservatives um, uh, on the carbon tax and being true blue and then continuing and, and, that it was it was it was very it was a it was a moment of clarity for the Aaron O'Toole like where the mindset that he and his his people were we thought they were stupid and it turns out they weren't stupid. <laughs> wow. It, that that interview from from Matt whoever that person was it was the least strategic thing I've ever read. It was like a letter from prison. It was like I'm so tired. I'm so defeated. I'm full of regret. I'm very angry. I may join the Italians, maybe the Aryans. I don't know. I've got to find someone to fit in with from now on here behind these bars, but golly, I'm awfully. I mean, I guess we did everything wrong. I think we did most things wrong. Anyhow, it sucked. We suck. I suck. Um, I'll try to make a phone call in three weeks. Like so the just, thing I, one of the things awful. I think is interesting is that we're the only people in Canada talking about Aaron O'Toole. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, there it's, is it's, nobody talking about Aaron O'Toole. It's so over. You know, one of my favorite political ads ever was a Reagan ad against George Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988, because Bush had this incredible resume. He'd been the head of the Republican National Committee, and he'd been the head of the CIA, and he'd been a congressman, and he'd been ambassador to the UN, and all this kind of shit. And they ran this ad, the Reagan people ran this ad, of a guy walking through a fresh field of snow and not leaving any footprint whatsoever. <laughs> That's beautiful, right? line, eh? And that was George. That was George Bush, as far as they were concerned. He has a great resume. What the fuck has he ever done? And and O'Toole disappeared as quickly as that. Like no footprint in the snow whatsoever. 
No, it's and, and, well, and I don't think you can compare Bush to uh, uh, Aaron to, to Bush. No, 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 no. But it's, it, it is know. actually it's funny. I was saying this to someone yesterday. It is. It's almost like the Aaron O'Toole era was over. like it was kind of like the vote came on Wednesday. He put his video out. Everyone kind of shrugged and uh, and moved on. And it, but it also just shows that how important it is and, and how, um, I, you know, principles do matter, especially within the conservative uh, coalition. Don't lie. It's it's the, you know, things I learned in kindergarten um, uh, list. Uh, don't lie ever. It's a bad thing. Definitely don't lie in politics, especially to your own uh, to your own party, which is what uh, Aaron did. And. And caucus is a lot more important than people give them credit for, which is one of Harper's strengths that, you know, uh, we've talked about on the pod that people don't realize that his relationship with caucus was uh, extremely important in terms of keeping uh, keeping our coalition together. And Aaron seemingly did the exact um, uh, the exact opposite. And so uh, th- those th- three things, I think, are the the reason he uh, he down spectacularly and how nobody is talking nobody cares Aaron is Aaron is I've I've spoken to literally hundreds of conservatives over the last four or five days and nobody is talking about Aaron he's just dead it's it it is a monumental lesson in how savage this world can be how abusive we're being right now right I mean we're pounding it in but it is like it's like the Bugs Bunny cartoon you know like when the Roadrunners runs and he just takes that dot of black and throws it down. Something goes through it. He picks it back up and runs away. That's Aaron. He just he went through he went through the Roadrunner black dot and now that's it. He'll never be heard of again. Nobody will think about him again. It's like what's the Roadrunner doing? That's all that's on anybody's mind. It's gone. Yep. I actually thought of a I actually thought of a different Bugs Bunny metaphor. You know how in those cartoons you can run off the cliff and still be running through air until you realize that you're not on the ground anymore. And it's the moment that you realize that you're not on the ground anymore that you fall. Well, O'Toole feels like he was off the cliff for some time and just didn't realize it. You hold up you hold up a, an umbrella and you pop it open and it says, Mother! Right? And then... Okay, so before we get onto it, I want to get to the convoy. Uh, before we get onto it, though, Scott, I got an important piece of business. Right. What is the line on the Super Bowl? Uh, you know what? I haven't checked it, to be honest, so I don't know. I'm going to guess that it's uh, slightly favors L.A., maybe uh, three and a half, four and a half. I'll check it right now. Okay, who do, who do you want? Who do you want? I guess I'll cheer for L.A. My old high school football coach always no, said... No, no, oh, we're betting $50. We're betting $50. Who I'll, do you I'll, t- I'll, I'll take L.A., but I kind of like the swagger of that Burroughs kid, you know? That kid, he's yeah. a born star, but I'm going to go L.A. Okay, okay so I'll take team. Cincinnati. Right. Jenny, you want any piece of this? Nope, not not one little bit of it. This is the Super Bowl I'm as... I don't know that I've been this not engaged in a Super Bowl in a long time. I wanted the Niners to win so bad, and, you know, the problem was they had a quarterback who obviously suffers from a whole variety of physical and uh, mental defects, and uh, it created an enormous hurdle. But uh, I, I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever, I guess. My my sister, for what it's worth, my sister is the biggest football fan I know. She's a, a long suffering Dolphins fan, um, uh, and she said she is going to watch. She will she will definitely watch. She doesn't really care who wins, but probably her heart's a little bit with Cincinnati. It would seem to me you can only call your abdominal muscles abs if they're visible, and mine are so not visible. I haven't really used them in the last eh, twenty years, and so Hurley's abs are lost. Beneath layers of burly. Use it or lose it. That principle is at the heart of this next part of the story from our presenting sponsor, TELUS, on how to get high-speed 5G wireless connectivity right across all of Canada. Not just the big cities, but all rural, remote, and indigenous communities. 
This is Chapter 4, Search and Deploy. Right now, the Feds are holding public consultations, searching for the answer to this question. What's the best way to auction licenses for a new, critical, mid-band of 5G spectrum, which can carry reams of data over very long distances and will make connectivity so much faster? TELUS believes a 100 MHz CAPS policy is the way to go because it means four different carriers will have enough of that spectrum to launch their 5G networks equally in every market. They'll have to compete aggressively on service. Good for all of us. But deploying that spectrum in a timely manner is just as big an issue. And here's where the policy of use it or lose it applies. TELUS believes that carriers who buy the spectrum should be mandated to invest and use it in all markets, especially rural, or else the government should have the ability to retract the licenses. The facts are these hurly burlyites. In previous spectrum auctions, there was a 20-year deployment window. 20 years! It's led to spectrum squatting, which works like this. Regional carriers buy the spectrum at a steep discount. Then, in rural areas, they barely deploy it, doing as little as possible in order to hold on to it before reselling it at a massive profit. So they're not actually using the spectrum. They're gaming the system at the expense of Canadians. It's the prime reason so many rural, remote, and Indigenous communities don't have the high-speed connectivity they need right now. The stakes couldn't be higher. Faster deployment of 5G to every single Canadian household is going to help us keep up with the rest of the world in our innovation economies as we emerge from this pandemic. Lots to chew on here, and you can have your say in the process by going to telus.com slash get5gright. Okay, so we had another week of convoy news in Ottawa and nationally. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk a little bit about why the various actors are behaving as they are and performing as they are. Um, let's start with the federal government. They... Um, Laterally this week, um, started to show that they wanted to be seen to be paying some attention to it. They had ministers out for a news conference, and then the prime minister spoke uh, yesterday in the House of Commons and answered a couple of questions. There had been demand from some quarters for him to speak earlier. Um, Jenny, do you think he needed to speak, and uh, what do you think the purpose of his speech was? Um, listen, I think the Prime Minister should have spoken earlier about this. I think that uh, um, uh, it's kind of been more of the same in terms of how the government has handled a lot of COVID policies over the last 23 months. I think that uh, the federal government comes out and uh, they're very overarching. They make very overarching statements. They make value kind of propositions. Um, uh, and they have like done, especially at the start, there's been more of the financial, uh, uh, you know, announcements and, and programs like SIR. And, and the different business supports. Um, but for the most part, it's it's more of an abdication of responsibility. So it's abdicating responsibility to the municipalities for for, for this. That's, this is Jim Watson and and uh, slowly the um, uh, police chief. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's you know, the lockdown policies for the most part have been provincial. And so I think it's kind of more of the same of this government is, is 
uh, coming out when they absolutely must to say something. They don't really say anything substantive. Um, uh, it's it's more just kind of smoke and mirrors to. Uh, um, uh, but at the end of the day, the the actual uh, bare book, like the actual guts of doing something, uh, is is basically uh, abdicated to other uh, levels of governments. So, Jenny, what would you suggest that they? What would you suggest the Fed role of the Fed should have been? playing in this because you know i mean i i personally i'll just lay myself my personal sort of conundrum on the line here which is that i think there's almost no point in talking to the actual people who are in ottawa because their adherence to a a, a ridiculous proposition that they want to take over the government and have everybody resign and i don't see any basis for talking to those people yet i feel conscious about the sentiment that they represent in the country and the need to be sensitive to the sentiment they represent in the country. So I want the federal government to be talking to the sentiment in the country, but not in any way seriously engaging with this group of people in Ottawa. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, uh, I don't disagree with that. I think that, uh, uh, but, but I think that that had to happen months and months ago, like almost two years ago. And we haven't seen uh, the private, except for the first kind of couple months, we haven't really seen the prime minister uh, do that. And it was easy. We've talked about this. It was easy for politicians of all stripes, um, you know, depending on the, the, regardless of the political party, liberals in Ottawa, conservatives and NDP and uh, provincial governments from, you know, Doug to Jason to uh, to Horgan. And so it was easy at the start to go out and do the whole we're all in this together. Um, I, what have you. Now we're at the hard, hard part because we remain uh, one of the most locked down uh, jurisdictions, well, at least Ontario and, and Quebec. Quebec are uh, in terms of like the Western world, people have, have moved on. And so this has become more of the hard part of, uh, of COVID management, uh, so to speak. So I think that the prime minister, uh, you know, if he doesn't want to address the protesters directly, uh, to your point, he should address the, you know, 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent of Canadians who are upset with um, different levels of government. They are upset with COVID policies that have uh, been um, that that have hurt their standard of living and and in some cases their livelihood and their health uh, for non-COVID related reasons. And I think that the Prime Minister he he is he has shown he can do this before. His messaging leading into the election in terms of um, uh, in terms of vaccines was you know we're we are all a family. We all have neighbors who aren't vaccinated. Like it's he, he has shown that. And I think that if he wants to uh, not speak directly to the protesters, which from a political point of view, I could understand him not wanting to, I think that he has the opportunity with his, uh, with the, with his stature and uh, with people uh, through speeches or a, a, an address to the nation, he has the ability to, to, to calm things down, to, to lower the temperature and speak directly to, uh, directly to Canadians who's, 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 who are legitimately concerned. So our sponsor, CN, would like to take a moment here to talk about responsible behavior during a very difficult time. We've just come through what Queen Elizabeth, bless her platinum heart, once described as an annus horribilis, a really lousy year. At the risk of darkening our national mood further, let me tick a few things off. Last winter wasn't just brutal, some of the coldest weather on earth. Then summer hit western Canada with some of the hottest weather on earth. Wildfires erupted. The town of Lytton in B.C. was destroyed, as was the adjacent First Nations community. In autumn, we learned the term atmospheric river when so much rain fell that the city of Vancouver was turned into an island. There certainly isn't any doubt left about climate change. 
The past 12 months brought the third wave and the fourth wave and the fifth wave and new COVID variants. The pandemic disrupted our fragile foreign supply chains, and its economic damage has been hardest on people of color and Indigenous communities. So what's a good corporate citizen to do? Well, let me tell you what CN did. It soldiered on. CN complied with public health rules in all the jurisdictions where it operates. It required its workforce to be vaccinated, and its workers complied. As a result, CN trains have loaded up and rolled on time every day across provincial and international borders, moving basically everything we consume. Our shelves remain stocked as a direct result. Our domestic supply chains are rock solid. CN not only coped with extreme weather, it stepped in to help when disaster struck in BC. Furthermore, the railway has been named a top performer in reducing its carbon footprint and has taken steps to make its management and board of directors more diverse, more inclusive. CN does not regard any of this as heroic stuff. It is what I said earlier, quiet, responsible behavior and public service. Being a vital pillar of the Canadian economy is a heavy load. But you know, CN has been dealing with heavy loads for 100 plus years. Scott, if Paul Martin was the prime minister, you'd have written that speech yesterday. How'd you think? Yeah. What'd you think of it? Uh, I liked it a lot. So, uh, you know, but I, I want to pick up on the first thing you asked, David, because I did like the Prime Minister's speech last night, and I was pleased to see him in the House of Commons. Um, I liked his speech. I liked the messaging. And I actually personally think that it actually it corresponded with what Jenny just said she was looking for, because I did hear the Prime Minister say things like, the pandemic has sucked, and, and everybody hates it. And, and the impacts and the restrictions that it's imposed on all of us is awful. Um, so no one is in favor of those things. Um, we've acted out of necessity, out of... Um, out of respect for trying to protect one another and ourselves, um, but then made it crystal clear that, you know, but these, 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 these people occupying downtown Ottawa have no, no legitimacy, and I'm not going to negotiate with them, as some have suggested, even some politicians I find mind-boggling. Um, so I, I like his speech. But to your earlier question about, like, well, what about his, what about the overall demeanor of the federal government, the presence of the uh, federal government? And let's just take for this window of, say, 12, 13 days that it's been since the protest began. I... I've been among those who, as much as I like what the Prime Minister had to say, felt that he should have been more present. And and I, I couldn't help but think of it, as we all probably do, through the lens of, well, what advice would I be giving if I was sitting there across the desk from him? And he would say things to me like, well, for Christ's sake, Reed, what do you want me to say? I mean, I've said that we'll, you know, and uh, we're willing to harness resources at the request. I mean, what is it you would want me to say? And I guess my... My feeling, particularly as it's carried on, and and you can see the fatigue and the frustration forming with people that are living, particularly in Ottawa, and therefore you know subjected to it. Um, I think it becomes a question of it's not just about well, what's my remedy to this and all that. It's is what's the role of the federal government, and I think maybe there was some hesitation around that. But let's not own this problem, and and that's smart politics. But at some point, you outsmart yourself or you think too much like that. I think. Really, at some point over this past couple of weeks, this thing turned into with the failure of Peter Slowly, the police chief in Ottawa, to take control of it, the inability of any response. Now they're kind of embedded there, and it's hard to imagine how you physically remove them without uh, awful spectacle and violence. I think at some point people start saying, well, I, I don't know. Like, what the fuck is going on with government? Is government and are the institutions of government and the you know rule of law, are those things failing me? Because I still can't 
help my kid get to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning on the 9th, 11th, 12th day of this thing. And that's why I think the Prime Minister should have been more present, saying, look, um, these folks, this precise group of people with their precise demands, it's not legitimate. And Government and institutions do respond. We have responded to this. We will respond more to the threats and the impositions and the discomforts and the troubles that it creates. But I think that you need an edifying force that says, actually, our institutions are valid, not legitimate. Instead of just letting all that stand, all the complaints, all the arguments, all the complaining, letting you get morphed up into people's frustrations and having, particularly with the police force, seems so emasculated, so unable to do anything, leaving a lot of people to say, well, fuck, I guess I'm on my own because nobody's doing anything about this. So that's why I thought he should have been more present, saying what he said last night, earlier, and more often. Is that what a party that wanted to get 40% of the vote instead of 30% of the vote would do? You know what? That, I, I, we can have an argument. If we had, we had 12 people in a room like us with our background, probably you get 13 opinions. I think so. I think you have to look at this and say, this is actually, the, we are brewing up for a fundamental argument here, right? Uh, about what is the role of government? How do we harness populism versus how you're responsive to people without actually legitimizing um, views that are obviously illegitimate? So I, what's the balance between that? I think those things, however they precisely manifest at the ballot box in the next election, I think those that's where the debate is headed in this country post-pandemic. And... Um, and with Pierre uh, Polyev, I think, as, as, as leader, who will be a potent political communicator, who will seek to harness that populist trend, who will try to turn the anger that people feel um, into, into, into political value for them. And I think that the Liberals have got to start defining that debate now before it gets defined by their opponents. And so, yeah, that's why I, I, that's, I think this is the ballgame, in my view. Yeah. I would just say my own perspective on Jenny's point about the country being divided is, you know, I mean, I don't know that you can say it's never been more divided when you look at the Quebec referendums we've had. But I do think that the prairie provinces have never been more alienated from the central government and from central institutions than they are now. Um, and uh, is that it is more like just, when I, I mean, think about the end? And the NEP, you were more present during the NEP, David. I, and I don't mean that as a joke. Like, you're a, a few years older than me. So, like, I was, like, that was pretty severe, wasn't it? Worse than yeah, this? It, it, it wasn't, it was angry. It was angry, but it wasn't like this. And I, I remind you that in the 1980 election, which is the election under Pierre Trudeau that the Liberal Party tried least hard in Western Canada, in fact, arguably ran against Western Canada, Right, the party still got twenty-five percent of the vote in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, and twenty percent of the vote in Alberta. Right, we are now down to ten or less percent of the votes in those provinces, which means we don't exist. Which means that the central government is completely rejected by the electorate, not a viable competitor. And I just, I, I, I think that the Trudeau government gave up on that. They, they were, they had a lot of good intent about it in twenty fifteen, and they did reasonably well. And it slipped off the agenda, and the and the people slipped away, and I don't think they're interested in it, uh, the Trudeau government. And I wish they were, because um, because even if it's not politically perspective, I think you need to be somewhat concerned about 
I, I, I'm with Jenny, how alienated those people are. I also, David, don't think it's, yes, do I think Western, do I think uh, uh, Westerners, especially in the Prairie Province, feel alienated? But I don't think it's just that. I think it would be, I would be wrong if, uh, if the Liberals, because uh, uh, that could play to a narrative that they have for the reasons that you say. They don't give a shit about Western Canada because they can form government uh, without it, uh, without them. Uh, but I think it would be wrong if, if Liberals think that it's just people in the Prairie Provinces that are, uh, that feel alienated right now or, or upset because that is not, that is not the case. That's not what we're seeing. Um, uh, that is not what we're seeing across the country and that's not what we're seeing in provinces uh like ontario and quebec uh which which i know geography reasons were the reasons that uh, they were uh, out in full force um regarding the uh the protest but it's i think it would be very wrong if people assumed uh that it was simply an alienation um uh, it was just the west that was alienated felt alienated from the government right now um just one uh in terms of another political level of government on the convoy thing one of the things that interested me was the Ford government and how disinterested they appeared to be in the Ottawa protest. In fact, the only voice I actually heard, maybe I'm wrong, but the only voice I heard was Lisa McLeod asking the protesters to leave. Um, but when, it, when there was a threat there was going to be a protest in Toronto, the provincial government seemed like they were all over it, working closely with the city and had a plan in place. And, you know... It reminded me of my days working in the Ontario provincial government and just how present Toronto is in your life when you are the provincial government and how what's happening in Toronto supersedes what's happening anywhere else. I mean, I think when you're the premier of, of Ontario, you're half the mayor of Toronto. Well, and, 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 and more so for, 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 uh, for Doug, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Toronto. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I think that's the case. I also think though, for the same reason, um, for, for the exact same reasons that you say, say that Ontario, uh, like if the Ontario government, Toronto is omnipresent. I think that's part of the reason why, um, people were expecting the, uh, people were expecting the liberals to the liberal government in Ottawa to play a bigger role. It's, it is the, it is the center, like the government is the center of, of, of Ottawa, the Parliament Hill is, is uh, it's the federal government. And so I think the both can be said. I think it's just, it's a knee-jerk reaction to think if it's happening in Parliament and if it's happening, you know, in downtown Ottawa and the core blocks on, you know, the, 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 the juncture of Wellington and uh, uh, Wellington and Rideau, it's, it's a federal government responsibility. And so I think it kind of, it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's both ways. I think that probably the, the, you know, the city of Toronto and the Toronto police force force kind of looked at Ottawa and, and uh, uh, looked at some of the mistakes that, that people have been uh, pointing out about the Ottawa, uh, the Ottawa police police force. And they just are like, okay, well, we're just going to cordon off Queens park. So there that's, we're, we're going to do, we're not going to end up in the same situation that uh, uh, we're going to not in the same situation as, uh, um, as Ottawa. And so, you know, you had uh, some people in Yorkville that were extremely inconvenienced uh, as uh, people danced down uh, uh, Bloor. Uh, but uh, um, for the most part, it was like the the the, the main protests on uh, on Friday night. And I had a lot of friends that went out and took a lot of pet pictures. I had one friend describe that it was almost a cross between Caravana and uh, Pride uh, in terms of what the mood and the and the partying uh, that was taking place. But uh, like you even had the uh, the truckers or the farmers that came in on Friday night and they all had to leave. They had to leave after a couple hours because they had to go home and make sure that their livestock were fed and they were planning on coming back in the morning. So it was just a, it was a much different, it seemed a much different atmosphere generally uh, uh, between Toronto and, uh, and Ottawa protests. Yeah, I, I think I agree with tons of that. Um, 
like in particular, I'll just call it like James Raymer, who's the interim police chief in, in Toronto, um, did a hell of a great job um, and was backed by the mayor of Toronto. And he was backed by the uh, by the province quietly or loudly at different times. So I think, you know, and people can say, well, he had the benefit of learning from Slowly's mistakes in Ottawa. Yeah. All right. But he also had a fundamentally different point of view. And, you know, there's some schools of philosophy about policing and stuff that also um that also belie all that. But I mean, you know, I think basically the attitude of pretty well, everybody, the police chief, the mayor, uh, the premier, um, provincial government was, look, if you want to be able to make this thing stop, then you got to be very careful about letting it start. And so they, over a course of a number of days, you know, winnowed down what would and would not, would not be permitted. And that had a dampening effect and it allowed them to respond in a different way. I think even more interesting from Ford is, um, today like just this morning with the blockage that's happening on the ambassador bridge holy smokes you want to see a provincial government move like he's gone lickety split like as you say he's very quiet about stuff in ottawa sort of the way you know how do we play this is this part of my voter coalition is it not is it ottawa and therefore the pm sort of where is it why would i go down the 401 and get my mitts all over this thing and all that but the ambassador bridge it's like hey guys it's a main artery we're not fucking around okay like this thing's going to be cleared. And if we have to start doing stuff like removing vehicle certificates, well, then we'll crackerjack right onto that. And so the contrast in his messaging, huge. And I guess I presume a part of it is after 13 days, people are like, yeah, I, I got no fucking time for this stuff. And I don't want to see it start happening everywhere. If you permit it to occur on the ambassador bridge, does that mean it's going to start popping up in a whole variety of places? So you have to say, listen, Ottawa is not going to be the template we're going to accept everywhere. Well, threatening democracy is one thing, but threatening the economy, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, I don't screw around with my oranges, man. <laughs> well, this takes us to our clipping of the day. We have sound effects for this. Our clipping of the day came to us yesterday, courtesy of the Globe and Mail and Mark Kearney. Mark Kearney, and this may be the starting point for this conversation, is Mark Kearney wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. And it wasn't about climate, and it wasn't about finance. <laughs> um, it was about uh, ending the blockade. Um, and he, uh, he did two things that were interesting in this, one of which is uh, he wasn't playing around with the protesters. He out and out called it sedition and said that it ought to be treated as sedition um, and the money ought to be traced uh, to it. And the second thing is, and, and I thought this second part had some resonance uh, in the dialogue throughout the day yesterday, was his, his, his call to peace, order, and good government uh, as, the, uh, as the overarching theme of the Canadian Constitution and as a, of our Canadian uh, society. So I guess the question is, why do you write it? And what does it mean? And what, is he, what does it do for him? Scott, you want to start? Uh, sure. I don't know why he wrote it. Um, it's certainly, um, you want to talk about sound effects. Holy smokes, I could hear the tongues clicking from official Ottawa all the way up here in Toronto. People were, woohoo, what's this mean? Especially because, <laughs> as we mentioned, the prime minister, you know, he had COVID or whatever. Maybe they were politically managing But he seemed to not be very present for three, four days. And it was right in the midst of that prior to the PM speech that, of course, marks 
op-edlands and boy oh boy did it send the hens a clucking uh i i i I, I liked the op-ed i liked it a lot i liked its clarity i liked that it's uh was uncompromising on this issue i like how it contrasts with the conservatives and i thought it set up a pretty interesting clash um I um I don't know. I don't know what he's up to. I mean, uh, you know, people can speculate. If the PM leaves, does this mean that Mark, is this an indication that Mark is more likely to enter the political fray is that, you know, because he's decided to comment on broader issues? Or is it just like he's a prominent guy, gets asked all the time, he lives in Ottawa, and he's fucking sick and tired of the horns blaring all goddamn night every night. So uh, I don't know what it means, but I choose to speculate it that it means that he is going to be present in our politics. He's going to express his point of view and speak up when it suits him. And I think that's a Oh, goddamn K by me. You know, you wouldn't think that if you worked in the prime minister's office. Well, I don't know. No, no, you'd I have been pissed about that column and fucking admit it. Oh, you would maybe. have been pissed. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, they money. I don't, I, don't, I, I don't, you don't need to be pissed if you're not threatened. Like, if you know that the PM is staying, like, let's be crystal clear about this, right? Justin Trudeau has no there's no thin ice under that guy's feet right so you know people speculate about his future it's completely 1000 percent in his control so you ought not to be too pissed off about it if you don't like the contrast in terms of the volume that's coming on this issue we'll increase your volume you got the biggest microphone in the country the prime minister so you know like uh, if you're pissed because you think that it suggests something politically your position is secure and if he's already decided that he is moving on as some people think you and i don't but if that's what some if then then obviously you're not threatened anyway so Whatever. Yeah, I agree. Well, I agree somewhat with that. I agree that, uh, listen, I think what it means is he's he's putting his name out there uh, to comment on a whole host of things. Do I think that uh, he is going to try to overthrow uh, the current prime, uh, prime minister? I, I, I don't think so, but he's trying to get his name out there in terms of uh, at least keeping his name uh, for, for when the prime minister eventually uh, does retire or take his take his walk in the snow. Uh, I thought the column was actually kind of unimpressive. Like it's, he's really, it's not like he really offered anything new. It, it was a cut and paste between what, you know, uh, Trudeau has said uh, and what, you know, guys like Jerry Butts and Catherine McKenna have been tweeting for the last week. So it wasn't really anything new. I think the sedition, sedition thing was uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit over the top, uh, like what we talked about, um, uh, what we've talked about before. It, it, it you know, you can't call a uh, peaceful protest sedition. It, it just seems to, uh, it, it it feeds into the rhetoric, but for the uh, for the audience that uh, the audience the audience uh, that he is uh, that he is appealing to, it's the audience he is appealing to will will say that peaceful a peaceful protest in Ottawa is sedition, but it's you know it's okay to advocate to have terrorists like Omar Khadr be brought back, uh, even though they planted uh, IEDs uh, in Afghanistan that uh, uh, could have killed or contributed to Canadian soldiers dying during a war. So, so, but it was a very, uh, it was a very, uh, it was, it, 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 it was, it was a piece that was, that was like, hey, liberal establishment, hey, liberal members, when this, when Trudeau goes, it's not just Christian Freeland, I'm here, don't forget about me. And I'm more than just <laughs> Uh, I am more than just the guy talking about uh, uh, climate change and globe trotting around to UN conferences. It does not get me as horny as you know talking about the Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. So let's not let's not over let's not overcompensate here, Mark. I want to get back to that because that's where that's what really gets my uh, my genes. But that was but but that was the audience. That was fun to see him speak out. The audience, the audience that that was was to you guys. It was not to me. I right. think that's fair to say. Okay. Let's move on before we run out of time to the conservative leadership race itself. And 
uh, I think a couple of us have some disclaimers uh, that we want that we want to make. I'll make mine. A couple? Okay. I, I, I'm actually shocked. I'm like, who's the other Jesus one? Christ, I- no one told me I had to bring a disclaimer. Give me a minute here. I got to come up with something. <laughs> I have a disclaimer just so people understand how I'm going to be trying to process this. I, I am really going to be trying to fight my bias because I don't like the, I don't know Pierre Polyev at all. And I don't say that I don't like him, but I don't like the political persona of Pierre Polyev. And it's never been the kind of thing that appealed to me. That doesn't mean it won't be successful. And I need to just, I need to distinguish my own personal reaction and analyze this because the only thing that I do know for sure about Canadian politics is that the Liberal Party is going to lose an election. And so some leader of the Conservative Party, and we're getting near the time when you would expect it to start to happen, is going to be the Prime Minister. So point number one, you can't discard him just on that basis. The second thing is there are lots of things about him that show a lot of sophisticated understanding of politics. Um, And uh, I don't... I, I don't want to disregard that. So people listening to me as this goes on are going to hear somebody that's really trying to understand something that they don't really understand. Um, and I'm going to try to be fair about that. Well, that's not really a disclaimer, David. That's just that's self-awareness. That's not a disclaimer. But I do appreciate you trying to make sure that I'm not the only person on the pod that that has to do a disclaimer. I don't think anyone is going to be surprised uh, when they hear that uh, I'm obviously supporting uh, Pierre uh, in his leadership bid. Um, I I think I made the same disclaimer uh, back in, you know, December 2019, January 2020, uh, when Pierre was musing about running, uh, running the last time and, uh, and, and didn't that I would, uh, if Pierre written that I would, uh, I would support him. So um, I, it, it is a complete disclaimer that um, it will be a shock to, uh, I would be shocked, I would be more shocked if someone is shocked by hearing this, uh, <laughs> that I will be, uh, I will be supporting uh, uh, Pierre in his bid to uh, lead the Conservative Party. All right, Reed, All right, what my, do you have going up to? Uh, my disclaimer is uh, the same, same as David's, but I just want to underscore uh, emphatically that I lack the self-awareness that David has. So I'm just phonetically repeating what he has to say about how I don't understand it and all, and all that sort of shit. Um, but I'll try very hard to be objective and not uh, personal and angry and uh, all that sort of thing. Um, but I will say in all honesty, um, uh, I think the guy's talented and he scares me. And he scares me because I also don't like the politics. And I think it's going to be fascinating because I think it's going to be really interesting to watch to see how an overt effort to harness that populist uh, sentiment um, translates and whether it translates into something over 30%. And I am constantly thinking to myself, why is the Liberal Party trapped at 29%? Why is the Liberal Party trapped at 29%? And how very, very, very fucking vulnerable that leaves it, particularly after it's been in power for a number of years and gone through three elections, how very, very vulnerable that leaves it. And um, when people go, oh, Pierre Pauly, I hate his politics, not going to, you know, nobody's ever going to elect him. He's going to be really popular, 25%, nothing beyond that. I'm, uh, I'm, um, maybe it's fear as opposed to self-awareness, but I'm not, I'm not in that camp. I'm, uh, I am seized with uh, this guy. Well, his, listen, his right. launch, is, it was a, it was a soft launch and, uh, 
Uh, about a half a million people have, uh, if not more, uh, last time I checked yesterday, half a million people have, uh, through different media, social media channels, have, uh, have, watched, his, uh, have watched his launch video. And, and that's something that is very unique in Canadian, uh, in Canadian politics. Jenny, I don't say this well, to be snarky, just, to, just out of curiosity. Do you know how many of them are Canadian? I have no idea. Okay. Just interesting. And people said, well, you know, more people watch this than a CF than an average CFL game. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But I'm curious as to how many of them are. My, my guess are would be Canada. the vast majority of people in, in, in are in Canada because why like it's that's it's that's what the market is. That like that's what the uh that is what the market are is that's what people that follow Pierre are. But um yeah. uh you know. Well, I mean it so sounds impressive. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. No, it what? sounds impressive. Just before you go, just it sounds impressive. But you guys have to keep in mind that he hitched his wagon to this uh, groundswell of uh, Victorian poet uh, William uh, Ernest uh, Henley, and so you know that 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 instantly baked in quite a few million right there. So uh, he's you know he's really he's hitting the <laughs> hitting the highlights. Why? Why okay, video? Tell me, tell me what you thought of the video. Who, are you asking? Well, it, 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 you might yeah, as well yeah, ask Scott. What did you think of the video? I, I thought the video was. I thought the video was great. I think we're we are still living in uh, in Ontario and Canada in the age of COVID. So um, the 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 traditional uh, you know announcement of a press conference or uh, um, uh, or or a rally. The rally's like something that that uh, that that is just impossible to do based on the COVID restrictions in Ontario or Quebec, or basically uh, pretty much uh, pretty much anywhere. Pierre has a very large social media presence. He has a very large following, and so um, a video uh, is it is a very was a very efficient way for him to uh, uh, for him to make the uh, to make uh, to make the announcement. And and you know uh, uh, there was no middleman. It was Pierre speaking uh, directly to uh, directly to people. It wasn't a it wasn't the traditional launch, and we've seen more and more politicians uh, doing that. We've seen that even Christine Elliott, uh, when she ran for leader in 2018, did a simple uh, tweet, "I'm in." So it's this is it's not new. It's just this is the biggest we've seen in Canadian politics in terms of the reach of it. Well, I guess I'll Scott? say what I liked and didn't like about it. Um, look, I, yeah. I, it's actually. Yeah. Um, uh, I agree with that, and maybe we can come back to that because I think it's interesting. I think it is now it's established that this is the mechanism, the default mechanism by which you declare your intentions to run for leadership. You do it online. You do it. You do it through social media. And you generate um, churn that way, um, as opposed to you know in the old days when you know you book a hall and then you come out with a, give a speech and you have like you know three senior members of the party whose gravitas and you know and pull with certain portions of the party are obvious well you were like, trying I, to generate earned media back in those days right because the only right. way that anybody would hear of your launch was earned media so you'd have to create an event that they could cover right that would look yeah. impressive now Big riser at the front you, little riser at the back for the cameras right that world's <laughs> over man like that fucking world is over like it's that's not how you get hurt right you get hurt by you know releasing your video on Saturday night or whatever the hell it was. It was um, it was intriguing. Well, and Jenny's um, point about the middleman is because in a traditional launch, the traditional launch, you would do your event and then you would spend several hours hoping, hoping that you got the right clip. Yeah. Right? Hoping that the media went with the, the, the line that you wanted them to go to or not. <laughs> and if they didn't, it's probably like, sound you know, a million man. years old, dude. It sounds like... No, but, but I remember true. it's true. I re listen. I remember it too when I first got in involved in politics, and you're waiting for like 
a, a store, a story to break in like the Vancouver province. And you'd have someone like go out, get the paper at 5am and like call you um, yeah. uh, to read you what the story was. Well, you know, the, the fax machine would go off and like the little rolly paper would like <laughs> fall for you to be able to, uh, uh, for you to be able to get that information. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's a whole other world. I mean, literally you would sit around and go, okay, we'll wait until nine o'clock and then we'll watch. Um, yeah. We'll watch the News World uh, edition of uh, of the National and find out if we succeeded in our communications objectives. Like, I mean, it's it wasn't that long ago, and yet, as you say it out loud, it was like kind of you know, I don't know. When you, you think the guy's coming down from the mountain with them stone tablets, like it feels like it's a long time ago. But it was. There, it wasn't oh no! Even- and you, I, I remember Mike Robinson in the nineteen ninety leadership on the phone begging Ellie, begging Ellie for a clip. At the CBC News, come on! You got to put Martin on, and you got to have him saying this. And you know, I mean, that's that's how you. you, I mean, it's choices you had. But it's up to ten years. Like ten years ago, it was still that where you'd watch the nine o'clock CBC at nine, and then CTV's early broadcast on on uh, uh, at ten o'clock. Like it's that's like that that was ten years ago. Like and even like if you look at the two thousand and eight election when um, uh, Dion did the interview with uh, Steve Murphy um, uh, uh, in. in, in on uh, the Atlantic channel, it was someone from Atlantic Canada that like called me and said, this was a disaster of a, of an interview. And like, it was when PVRs were still new. And so like yeah. calling someone that had a PVR to go back and then basically like record, like record on like a DVD to then drive to the war room for us to see it. And cause it was just, it wasn't like the instantaneous Twitter uh, that we get now in terms of like when it's on the news. So it's, it's not that long ago that we were all, um, we all, we all suffered from uh, uh, not instantaneous finding out instantaneously what's, what's happening. Hey, when does he have to face the media? Surely at some point he has to do some interviews. Yeah, well, Pierre does regular media. Um, uh, Pierre does regular media, but you know, we'll we'll see. At this stage of a of a leadership campaign, we know what people are are focused on, and uh, um, it's it's only been uh, you know five days since Aaron uh, Aaron uh, uh, bit the biscuit, so to speak, and so um, that's you know. Uh, that's, uh, th- there's a lot of things, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on, uh, uh, that are going on kind of behind the scenes. And so, uh, it's not that he's not, uh, he's not present, uh, publicly, um, uh, at, at all. But I think that, uh, um, if he was to ask for my opinion, I would tell him to just continue doing what he's doing. Uh, he's going to have plenty of time to, uh, speak to the, uh, mainstream media. So let me just, uh, cause I just can't help myself. There's a couple things about his video and the whole thing that I liked. From a technical standpoint, from a professional standpoint, there's a couple things I didn't like, obviously. I didn't like a lot of the messaging, but that's inherent, right? Like, I don't like this shit about freest country in the world, and we're going to create the freest country in the world. I, I really do think, and, and I, I, I'll try freedom? to be objective. What do you right, have against I think, freedom? I think, I think the whole uh, bumper sticker of freedom... Um, I'll be. This is among the things I'm going to try to be objective and curious to see how it unfolds. Because I, I think that it's innate value and its brand definition may be um, less and more uh, than conservatives think. Maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. Uh, Less in the sense that I think it taps into fewer people than you might think, and more in terms of making uh, associations with things that you might find are pejorative as opposed to positive. Um, But we'll see. What I I liked a couple things big time about it. Um, one, I liked, obviously I like the out front, fa- I like going out fa- fast. Like I think 
and I know it's awkward for you to hear, Jenny, but I think this guy is going to smoke the race. I don't even think there's going to be a race. I said that, I've been saying that on TV and radio since since uh, the vote that was happening on, on O'Toole's leadership. I was already down the road and over the hill saying Pierre's going to run. And when he runs, I don't know that there's going to be a serious challenge to him. Because I, you know, people talk, well, well, will the SOCONs put up a credit? I think that he actually, and this is an important thing for him in terms of the voter coalition, I think that he can comfortably accommodate um, virtually all parts of the modern conservative party. I think the SOCONs can say, well, I I'm comfortable with them. I don't need to have to have, I mean, maybe somebody will run, but I don't think even if they do run, if that vote collapses to them, I don't think there'll be any discomfort or uh, hand-wringing about that. Um, and I think a lot of professional conservatives of the Harper era and stuff will go, well, I know this guy and I can, you know, and I can see and I admire his professional talents. And just, so I'm just going to fall in line. And yeah, there'll be a handful of hardcore red Tories that say this is the wrong way for the party to go. That's almost a philosophical difference. Um, but I, I, I think getting out front first was smart. And just, I think it almost says like, seriously, come on, you're going to have to take this on or are you going to do that? Um, so I think it's, uh, I think in 03, when we launched, David, remember, and I mean, obviously people felt that we were in a strong position, but we released a letter demonstrating that we had 86% of riding presidents across the country. Again, it's kind of an indication of saying, like, seriously, like, don't fuck with us, okay? It's here. You demonstrate strength. Um, I like the plan. A lot of people don't. You know, they go, oh, it's bullshit. He's not really running for prime minister. He's running for leader. I like the affectation of saying I'm running for to be prime minister. And the reason I like it is I think the pedantry, I think the pedantry about that was uh, quite something on Twitter. People, oh, yeah. You know, this guy can't possibly win because he doesn't even understand the Constitution. He's not Andrew running Co for prime I, minister. Andrew Coyne was, was outraged. Outraged. I, I, <laughs> <people> <laughs> People stroke themselves about this stuff, and it's like, come on, right? I think, you know, for a conservative party that feels a little bit bruised over the last couple of elections and saying, well, God, you know, like, um, do we have someone that's clear and strong and that instantly has no hesitation in putting themselves in the conversation of prime minister? I think it actually sort of has a bunch of um, benefits. And I like to focus on the economic arguments because we all have talked about that a million times. And I think that, and in particular, I want to red circle his example of, uh, there's a whole generation of people who feel like they may not ever be able to access uh, an, an, an affordable home. They may never be able to be owners. I think that is that is a um, that's that is a a, a pressure point uh, among the population, and it's dead target. And you talked about it on your podcast last week, David. Um, Peter Routledge. So I thought all that was great. I'll tell you one thing that I'm going to be dinky about other than the messages that I don't like. One thing that I was a little disappointed in, there are a couple moments in the production of it where it wasn't the standard of tightness that I expect from the guy. There were a couple of miffed lines. There were a couple of beats that weren't it. He stepped on a couple of his own spots and I was kind of surprised by that. It looked like he was struggling with the teleprompter a little bit. I'm like, hey, this guy's not supposed to be that guy. This guy's supposed to be able to do that like water. So I'll be watching for that. But anyway, there's my uh, Rex Reed review. You know, it's it was interesting. I mean, you talked about a few things that were in it, like economy and things. But the message that comes out of it is a full-throated embrace of populism. Big time. Uh, the elites are fucking you, right? The people that are in control of this country are fucking you. They're fucking you economically. They're fucking you around with their freedoms. And they have a different interest than you do. It actually couldn't be more starkly different from Carney's op-ed. If you want, I mean, if you want two mm -hmm. different worldviews, um, one a defense of institutions and a defense of the system, 
and the other, an attack on those institutions, an attack on those, um, on those systems, um, it was right there. I mean, so we are going to see, I think, out of if that video is any indication, um, a very, a very direct populist appeal. And I'm just to go back to my disclaimer: curious about how that's going to turn out. Yeah. I think it's the most important political fight that we've seen in decades. And I think it's really important that people um, beat that message. I think it's like Ken Dryden when he says, listen, the most important cup we ever won was against the Broad Street Bullies because we had to stop that brand of hockey. That's how I feel about this populist movement. And I, so I think the stakes are going to be high and I think it's super exciting because you can't underestimate this guy's ability to pull it off. Right. All right. I'm sure, although I've lost track of the time, I'm sure we must be close to uh, exhausting even the accursed patience with us. So, hey, yous. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey, yous are about to begin. Anybody got one? Anybody want me to start? What do you want to do about a hey, you? Yeah, I'll start. It's going to be short and it's actually kind of, it's political, but yet non-political. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've had zero interest for the first time in the Olympics uh, at all. Um, I didn't care to, I, 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 I'm not a huge Olympics person. I do like the winter Olympics as opposed to the, uh, as opposed to the summer ones. I've had zero interest in, in it, uh, in it at all. Um, and uh, I really think that uh, we have talked about this. I think the IOC, I think the international community, I think the Canadian Olympic Committee, I think they really have to uh, to give some serious thought to the Olympics moving uh, moving forward. The only governments that will uh, that will actually bid for them uh, because of the astronomical uh, price tag that comes with them are 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 dictatorships like China and Russia. So so we're always going to be faced with the fact that you know we're we're competing in an Olympics where uh, it, it's a country that not just has severe human rights uh, abuses, they they actually have citizens locked up in internment camps and concentration camps. Um, uh, and and you know mass sterilization and and removing people's uh, uh, language, um, their own language and culture and religion. And so um, I think that uh, unless there is some change um, uh, to uh, uh, to how uh, the Olympics is viewed, we are going to always be in the position that it's going to be human rights abusers like China and Russia uh, that we we are sending our uh, sending our athletes to. And I that it's a discussion that seriously has to happen um, uh, uh, moving forward. Very good. Permanent site, Jenny, right? Permanent site. Permanent, permanent site. Uh, one, Olymp one, one winter, one summer, permanent site. Yeah. Hey, I agree with got lots of that, but I also know, if I'm going to be honest, that six days from now, I'm going to be boring people in bars and explaining how I know more than just about anyone else about the skeleton. It's just the inevitable arc of the Olympics. This always happens. Um, I'll, I'll keep my hey you really short. Um, my hey you is to the prime minister. Um, I, I, I haven't known what to make of all this musing about the fact that you're thinking about retiring and maybe you're not going to run again. And, you know, I, I contrast that with what I think I've learned over the years about politicians and prime ministers and winning they, when they do and when they don't choose to leave the job um, with what I sometimes see as what appears to be some ambivalence um, post-election with respect to holding the duties. But boy, oh boy. If Pierre Polyev can't get you off your chair and into this game with full-throated enthusiasm, I don't know what will. This is a huge opportunity for you, Justin Trudeau. This is going to be a clash of not just 
platforms and points of view. This is going to be a big fundamental clash on how we see society and where things stand. It's going to be a big election, the next election with this guy on across the aisle. And he's got a bucket full of talent. It's time for you to literally re-energize yourself, take up this challenge, move past the sort of broad, superior, smug sort of put-downs of people that don't agree with you, and take this argument by the throat, dismantle it, and win. This is going to be a huge election, and it's going to have huge stakes, and it's going to have titanically talented people running in the leadership positions. Fuck, man. Do it. Pull it together. Come back and come back big and hard and fully employing your skills. 2015 Trudeau wins that fight. I don't know about 2022 Trudeau. That's 2022 Trudeau looks like he could give zero fucks about anything. My Hey You goes out to Jean Charest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I like Jean. He's a good guy. In the face of all odds, in the face of all obstacles, run. I'm begging you, run for the conservative leadership. Because in the normal order of things, the liberals are going to lose in the next four or five years the election, and the conservatives are going to govern, and I'd really rather it was you than anybody else. So for my sake, Jean, run for the conservative leadership. Well, that's, that'll be a ringing endorsement to conservatives right across the country, David. <laughs> it's like when Jerry endorsed Tasha Carradin online. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Why don't you just drive her out to the middle of the lake and drop her in the rocks in her pockets? Come on. I didn't say it was tactically smart of me to do. It's just a plaintiff bleat. Um, all right, you guys. Well, uh, I don't know what to say. I hope that I hope happier days are upon us. I hope we're not talking. God, fuck, is there, will there be a day when somehow COVID doesn't enter into this goddamn conversation? I really hope yes. so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. For the love of God, yes. Okay, thank you to our presenting sponsor, TELUS, to our sponsor, CN Rail, to all those accursed out there, and to you too. Love you both. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.